Please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15. I'll be reading verses 10 to 23. You can also follow along on page 7 of your bulletin. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites, and they spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you are once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than to sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. This is the word of God. With the growth of our church, <clears throat> it's very important to focus on the foundations of church culture, because as a pastor... Yes, I'm concerned about growth, and yes, I'm concerned about the mission of the church, but I'm far more concerned about the health of the local body. So more than focusing on the gifts of our people or the capabilities, the talents of our people, we want to focus on character. How's character born? Gospel character. And so we have this series within a series. We've been looking at passages in the Old Testament, if you're new or visiting, <clears throat> Passages that reveal how God works through brokenness to bring about salvation. But over the next few weeks, we're also going to be looking at this underlying sub-theme of character in some of these passages. And today's passage, this passage is about Saul. Saul is the first king of Israel. Saul was attractive. He was a natural leader who came from a great family. He, in other words, he, he was educated, he was trained, he, came, he had a wonderful pedigree. And at one point in his life, he demonstrated humility and mercy and wisdom. But Saul's life spirals to ruin. And it really begins here in this passage. And he ends up, and he becomes this murderous person, this violently murderous person because of his pride. And you have to understand, if Saul, if the king... If a religious person like Saul, if his life can blow up, well, then we're all prone to this. We're all at risk. Any one of our lives can blow up. There are four things we're going to see today. One, 
the deafness of pride. Two, the blindness of pride. Three, the root cause of pride. And then lastly, well, how do we heal? How do we find healing from our pride? The deafness, the blindness, the root cause, and then the healing of our pride. This is a sub-series that's been really special to Metro. So if you've been coming for a while, you would have heard this maybe every couple years. We find it really important, and it just happened to kind of flow with the natural uh, part of our series, and so here we are. First, we're going to be looking at the deafness of pride. In verse 18, verse 18 gives us some context. The Amalekites, they were a neighboring country, a neighboring enemy tribe. They were extremely violent. And they were extremely greedy people. And you put violence and greed together, it's a lot of blood, it's a lot of death, a lot of conquest. So God says to Saul, as one single act of justice, I want you to engage them in battle. I want you to defeat them. And when you do, don't leave a single person alive. I want you to wipe them off the face of the earth, including the animals. Not a single person, not a single animal is to be left alive. Destroy everything, destroy everyone. What Saul does instead is... He keeps the best of the livestock, and he takes the king of the Amalekites as prisoner. Now, think about this. Israel, the ancient times, it's an agrarian culture. And so the more land you have, that equals more power, more wealth. And if you capture the enemy king, well, then now you are a king of kings. And so Saul, Saul was called to, to destroy uh, a greedy and violent culture, now he's becoming greedy himself. He's becoming violent himself. And so God says, he's disobeyed. He's grieved me. That's, those are the actual words. I reject him as king. Verse 19, Samuel asked Saul, why did you not obey the instruction of the Lord? Why didn't you hear his word? Why didn't you listen to his word? The Hebrew text, he's literally asking, why did you not listen to the voice of the Lord? And Saul doesn't say, well, you see, I thought about what God said. I disagreed with him. Uh, and so I wanted to go against that. Or, no, no, I, I, I guess I misunderstood what God was saying. Rather, that's not what he says. Rather, what he says is, I did listen. He doesn't own what he did. He doesn't take ownership. One of Saul's closest friends, essentially, is telling him, look, you have a problem. You didn't obey. And Saul says, but I did obey. You see, I'm going to make this big sacrifice. We're going to have a huge worship service to God. And that's us. We never immediately own our sin. We're always covering over our sin. We're always justifying ourselves and what we do by saying, no, I am listening. You see, I, I get you. I understand. I, I'll do that. I want to listen. And Samuel says, I told you to destroy everything. You say you listen. Maybe you heard me. We didn't take it in. It didn't shape you. It didn't shape your life. Because to listen to the voice of the Lord, to obey him, is greater than sacrifice. It's greater than any worship service that you attend. You haven't truly listened until you've applied my word, God's word, until that word has shaped you. What is he saying? What is this saying? It's possible that on one level, I mean, we have a lot of people here who say they've grown up in the church. It's very possible that on one level, you can hear God's word, but at a deeper level, totally miss it. And what's worse, totally neglect it or ignore it. God is almost pushed off to the periphery of your life. 
And all the while, you're attending community groups, serving at church, you know, doing all the things that Christians or people who believe in Jesus do, and yet God really doesn't play a factor in any of the decisions that you make that are critical to your life. And so with pride, there's a deafness. And it's because you listen on one level. You feel like you're hearing. You feel like you're listening or obeying. It's perfectly possible, like Saul, to say, I did listen. I did obey. Pride deafens you to the truth about yourself and what's really going on inside. The real reality about what's really driving you, what's really motivating you to do the things that you do. There's a type of self-deception that deafens you to all the warning signs Your friends see the warning signs. Godly people, men and women in your life, not just anybody, but the godly people who are in your life, they see that self-deception, all the warning signs that call you to remember who God is and the life that you're called to live because deep in our pride, there is an inherent distrust that God has your best interests in mind. So we stop hearing God. We stop hearing what he desires, what he wants from us, what he wills, what he promises us. Saul's thinking, well, give up all these animals. I mean, he's, they're just slaughtering people. There's lots of blood everywhere. And now he's starting to think, well, but these are such precious things. Why would we want to, why would God want us to get rid of all of this? I mean, God's a good God, right? Less blood is a good thing, right? He's not an evil God. He'll understand to give up all, this, all these animals, this increases Israel's wealth. This is good for our people. Why would God withhold good things from his people? Well, he must not be good. Either he doesn't understand or he must not be good. By the way, that's Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The Bible says that when Satan tempted Eve to eat of, I mean, she looked at this fruit of this tree that God said, hey, you're not supposed to take anything from this fruit. You're not supposed to eat from this fruit. And she looks at this fruit and it's pleasing to the eye. That's what it says. It's attractive to her. And she's thinking, why would God withhold this good thing from me? Because at the root of all of our acts of sin, we are so pragmatic as a people. We're constantly focusing on the act of sin. That's what makes you feel guilty. But at the root of all these acts of sin is a distrust in God. I mean, think about why we pursue things when God says clearly, don't pursue these things. Why do we pursue intimacy when God says, I am the one that you're to be the most intimate with? Why do we pursue wealth when he says, you can find that richness in me? Why do we pursue material possessions to look good or to feel like we've we've accomplished something, we made it, when God says, hey, you need me to define you? There's a distrust that God is telling you the truth, that he's real even, that he is for you and that he knows what's best for you. And so we become deaf. Now, the second point is is blindness. Our sin, our pride, it doesn't just make us deaf, it makes us blind. How? One, we close our eyes to our consciences. Verse 13, Samuel comes to see Saul. The text says, when Samuel reached him, Saul said, "Uh, hello, Hey, I've obeyed everything God has told me to do. In other words, I mean, parents, you understand. When you walk into a room and your, your child is caught off guard and they go, oh, I've listened to everything you said. You know that he's up to something, right? 
What's Samuel saying? I just want you to know, Samuel, I've carried out the Lord's instructions. Now, remember, Samuel hasn't said a word up until this point about why he's there. Saul's already responding like this. Why? What's happening? His conscience is acting up. He knows. He knows he hasn't listened. But he's not going to stop what he's doing. He's already far gone. So he's turned a blind eye to his conscience. Instead of coming clean, he just wants to come out clean at this point. He's trying to convince Samuel in some way that, that he's still obedient to God. I'm going to share an example with you. A lot of people in the church, a lot of people in our church for that matter, say, I believe. But then they really make decisions around wealth or status. What's going to increase my wealth, increase my status, increase my power? I mean, single folks, it's easy to come to a new church and say, well, I want to grow. I, I, I love being here because I'm being renewed. But then we get distracted, don't we, by the, the social noise that's around us in the church, especially as a church that's growing rapidly. We get consumed by the social dimension of being in a larger church, and we start to date people. And, and your friends, they know. They see this, and they say, look, man, it's, it's too early. Don't you think it's too early? I mean, where was the fire that you came in with? You know, this could derail your growth. What happened to that passion for the Lord and, and your passion for the church when you first got here? It, it's kind of falling by the wayside, and you're kind of distancing yourself from people, and you're distancing yourself from others. You're distancing yourself, distancing yourself from the people who can speak into your life. And, and what happens? It's easy, you get easily tempted to get defensive Maybe to even block these voices out, sin makes you deaf, right? But then it makes it very difficult for people to get in, right? To get into you, and you're not honest with them. You're kind of honest, but maybe only when you're asked. Or maybe you're kind of honest, but you're not going to tell the whole story. And now after a while, your friends, they feel like they have to tiptoe around you and around the subject because you're dodging every spiritual confrontation. You may even say you're sorry. Maybe your friends have called you out and you say, I'm sorry, I agree with you, but you're going to do what you're going to do, you see. When circumstances blow up, or maybe that relationship blows up, what do you say? I knew. I know. Why? Because on one level, you hear, you agree, you see. But on the other level, you're blinded by the things that you want. Those things that are diversions, distractions, you're blinded by those things. Other beauties have taken hold of your heart. Something else has your attention. Something else has your ear. Something else has your eyes. And most of us, when we're told, hey, this is bad, we never think that we're that bad. I mean, circumstances are going well. Can't be that bad. I'm doing well in my life. Can't be that bad. You're telling me the sky's falling. Skies look pretty clear to me. We don't believe. We lack the eyes of faith. We've closed our eyes of faith. And in the end, we'd rather be miserable than change. So our pride leaves us deaf and blind and sometimes miserable. You see that? In verse 13, Saul says, I've carried out the Lord's instructions. I've obeyed. I've listened to the voice of the Lord. Really? 
Samuel says in verse 14, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What then is this lowing of cattle that I'm hearing? That's what he says. In other words, you've listened? Then why am I listening to the voice of sheep and cattle? You were supposed to destroy all these things. What does Saul say? Oh, the soldiers, they brought them. The soldiers brought them. In Hebrew, he doesn't even refer to them as soldiers. You know what he says? He says, they brought them. You see, when you say they, there's no traceability. You can get away with saying anything as long as you say, well, they told me this. There are people out there that are saying this. Pride begins with one, being blind to your own conscience. And then two, it leads to a diversion, a form of sleight of hand, some sort of tricks, like blame shifting. Why? Because the easiest way to avoid looking at yourself is to focus on the flaws of other people, maybe even to deflect the attention of what's really wrong with you to something else. You see that? Anything to get the attention away from the things that you're pursuing and the things that you want deeply. Saul says in verse 21, this is the third thing. Okay, you know, you did keep these animals. I did keep these animals, but I'm going to sacrifice these things to the Lord. What is he doing? Rather than coming clean, what does he do? He uses his goodness. He's now saying, well, Saul, this is a, Samuel, this is a good thing. I'm trying to do a good thing for God. You know why I'm making all this money? I can give more to the church. Yes, I kept these animals, but I'm going to sacrifice to the Lord. I'm going to worship God even more. Once I do, what is he doing? He's using religion, your good intentions, as an excuse. But Samuel, it was all for God. It was all for worship. Your family is falling apart because you're investing so much time in wealth building that you're neglecting your children. Your wife or your husband is coming to you and saying, look, something, we got we to gotta put an end to this. This is hurting our family. What do you say? This is all for you. You see, I'm not doing this for me. I don't need this. I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this for us. It's the same kind of thing. You see that? Our goodness, our religiosity, a lot of us here, we haven't been away from the church. We've been in the church. There are a lot of people, and Metro is blessed to have people who have come into the church who've been away for a long time. And, and it is an amazing thing to be able to welcome people like that after having been away for a long time to explore faith and the dimensions of Christianity, maybe dimensions they have never explored before. But the thing is, a lot of us have been around. We've grown up in this context for a while. And uh, what that does is that builds kind of an inherent deafness over time. You see that? An inherent blindness over time. And so what happens is we start to justify ourselves our religiosity is so often confused, almost disguised as faith. And that becomes a way for us to justify ourselves. Look, you can't become, you can't rely on your incremental goodness while neglecting the priority of specific things that God is calling you to be and calling you to do every day in any given moment. Unless you come clean. Guys, you can't avoid it. We gotta come clean. It's hard because the longer you don't come clean, it's like this tension kind of builds. 
It's a spiritual tension that starts to build, and you're like, gosh, I can't come clean now. I'm going to wait. And then what happens is you wait, and circumstances and suffering and stuff starts to just break down, and you're like, you know God is calling on you to come clean, but you can't come clean because I've been in the church. I'm a leader here. You got to come clean. Unless you come clean, unless you confess, unless you own your sin and own that pride, unless you own the fact that, yeah, I've been blaming other people and trying to divert attention away from my own desires by looking at other people and their desires. By the way, when you do that, that's called gossip. When you're confessing other people's sins as a way to deflect attention away from yourself, that's what gossip is. The reason why God detests gossip is because he wants you to focus on you. You got to put an end to that disobedience. Pride makes you deaf. Pride makes you blind. It's why you're capable of any evil. Look, nobody wakes up one day and says, oh, I think I'll slaughter six million people today. No one does that. It's those incremental things that we do that are good, that we think replaces or overshadows or warrants our, our desires, the pursuit of our own desires. Well, I've done this, and it's good, so I, I can, I'm allowed to do this. I can, come on, I have some liberty in life. What's the root cause of this? Well, why do we run from these hard truths about ourselves? And the answer is where Samuel says to Saul, interestingly, in verse 17, he says, though you were once small in your own eyes, in other words, what he's saying is, aren't you a king? In your own eyes, you were the small person, and God made you king. Aren't you a king? Once you were small in your eyes, but God has made you great. The Lord has made you great. Why does he say this? The answer is in the beginning of the text. In verse 12, when Samuel, Samuel's on this journey looking for Saul. And as he's on this journey, he starts to pick up clues. The first thing he does, he's seeing with his eyes right? What does he see? A monument that Saul has erected in his own honor. That's what he sees. And as he gets closer, he starts to hear things. He starts to hear the lowing of sheep, the bleeding of sheep, and the lowing of cattle. There are these clues to Samuel that, oh, Saul has gone far deep. You see that? And so as he's gone down to Carmel in verse 12, they say, Saul's gone down to Carmel. There he set up a monument in his own honor. Samuel says, Saul, you were small in your own eyes. God has made you great. But instead, now you're trying to build your wealth? That's a clue. Now you're trying to build your own kingdom? That's a clue. That, now you're trying to build monuments for yourself? That's a clue. Now you're trying to disregard what your king is saying because you think you're your own king because you've captured another king and that makes you the king of kings. Lots of clues here. You've disobeyed God and you're justifying it. You're trying to make yourself great, to look great in your own eyes. You want to convince yourself. There's this, there's this undergirding undercurrent of, of smallness in your life. That's your view of yourself. To overcome that, what do you do? Well, I got to build, I got to accomplish, I got to grow, I got to do all these things to convince myself that I am great. I mean, what is envy? What is jealousy? What is covetousness? You know what that is? It is a discontentment because you're looking around and somebody else 
who you may even perceive to be lower than yourself, has something that, oh gosh, if I just had that thing, how does he have that thing? How does she have that thing? Because if I had that thing, it, it's a source of worth for me. I deserve this. But somebody else has it. So somebody else has the looks or the popularity or the job or the wealth or made all the right moves at the right time or they have the right family or the right lifestyle. That life, those are our monuments. I mean, you come home and you look at your crappy life and you look at all those people out there who don't deserve it and you say, that's the life that I want. That's where I want to be. That's at the heart of jealousy and envy, a discontent where God has placed you in that moment. The reason why Samuel says, your arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. In other words, it's all because you feel small in your own eyes, and so you constantly are craving. It's an idol. In fact, you're setting up monuments. What do you think you're doing? You yourself want to be idolized. You're constantly needing monuments, and you're driven for more of it. You're never going to be satisfied to be accepted by others, to be loved by others. Look, if God and his love is sufficient for you, if God and his love is how you know that you are great, if that love has gotten into you in a way that has shaped your life, his love for you, his value of you, his honor in you, his delight in you, if that is your monument, if you could raise that up and say, and hold that high, then you can handle any truth about yourself. Nothing anybody says, anything uh, anybody says about you will be a surprise to you. The truth will never destroy you because it's not surprising. And it'll never undo God's love for you. But what if your monument, what if the monument in your own honor is I've always lived right? That's going to be my ticket to being respected by others. I'm a good person. That's going to be my ticket to being respected and loved and acceptable to other people. Well, then you'll be unable to accept anything negative about yourself. You will close your ears because you will wince and you'll develop allergic reactions to the words and to the people who speak them to you. You're becoming deaf. You know what that means? You can be wholly good on the outside, respected. I mean, you could just be loved by people, bear a great reputation. Oh, we work for that. We work to build that. We never want to get anyone upset because even if we know that they're going deaf, that they're going blind, I mean, you need to speak up. You need to stand up because why? Because evil, this is evil. In the eyes of God, we've grieved him. You could be wholly good on the outside and yet be evil in the eyes of God. That when he looks at you, he's grieved by you. And as you get older, you know what happens? Because we always say, well, someday. And one of my favorite, um, you know, a close mentor, the devil's favorite word is someday. Someday I'll start taking this stuff more seriously. Someday when I'm older, I'll, I'll become more faithful. Someday I'll obey. I'm going to settle down. Someday. You see that? As you get older, you accumulate more wealth, more debt, more titles, 
And for some of you, the title is CEO. For others, it's mom. It's dad. You start to own things and you accumulate things. You start to accumulate power. You've accomplished things, so that becomes a monument. You become more and more confident in yourself, even if you're miserable. And what happens is little by little, God's voice just gets an inch further away. His voice becomes on the periphery. Other voices, other desires, they're the ones that are truly central. I mean, I want to believe that all of us here want to and desire to, in some ways, be shaped by the gospel, to be shaped by God. So in some way, at least in some way, we want to obey God. That's not the issue. The issue is his voice isn't central to you. Saul heard, he didn't really hear. God has anointed you. He has made you king. He knew, but he didn't really know. God has honored you. He knew on one level, but he wasn't shaped by it. It didn't captivate him. He heard the words, never heard the music, never danced to the music of God's love and faithfulness to him. So he was blind and he was deaf. And look what happens. Everything he says, everything he's thinking, everything he sees, it's to ignore his own conscience, to blame other people, to justify himself, to cover over himself, to deflect attention away from himself. All the while he's building monuments and he's leaving a trail of, of clues that is causing the weeping and the grief of God. Building monuments, I mean, monuments are hard labor. You're working, it's a saw. I mean, he's a king, but he's really a slave. He's constantly slaving over building a name for himself. We have a lot of slaves in this room. Because if the gospel is not your monument, something else is gonna captivate you and control you. Something else you're gonna say defines me. I need to work for it. I'm willing to work for it. I'm willing to work to the bone for it. I'm willing, I need this. This thing's gonna make me or else it's gonna break me. And it's gonna twist your life. Look at Saul. Great education, great family, a wise person, merciful, gracious at one point. And his life is twisted into evil. He ends up becoming like a psychotic madman, a murderous person. What's the cure? How do you address this? Verse 17, Samuel says, God has anointed you. He has made you great. It didn't sink into Saul how much he was loved. And so Saul's working to build his own monuments. But you, you and I, we have a greater resource to know and to hear and to see God's love over and over and over again. We have lots of resources. We're going to be going through one of those resources today. Saul had Samuel to remind him. But you and I have so much more to be reminded, to remind us. See, Adam and Eve, they started in a garden. They distrusted God. Why would God withhold this good thing from me? Centuries later, there was another garden, Gethsemane. Jesus Christ, he's praying. What does he pray? Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. The cup that he's talking about is the cup of God's judgment, the cup of God's wrath, which will be poured out on him 
as a penalty for our sins. He says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup away from me, yet not my will, yours be done. In other words, I'm going to obey. Even if it means I must die, I will obey. And he did. He did in full. To obey is greater than sacrifice. Jesus Christ obeyed and he sacrificed. Jesus Christ is the ultimate resource that we can hear and that we can look to. Hebrews chapter 10, therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you do not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you are not pleased. I have come to do your will. You know what that means? Samuel says, God doesn't really want sacrifices or rituals. He wants your obedience. He wants your will. He wants you to bend your knee. He wants you, all of you. Jesus says, I've come to give you all of me. I've come to do your will. I will obey. Jesus Christ, he doesn't come to obey to become holy. The Hebrews writer says, Jesus Christ obeyed to make us holy. We would be made righteous. We would be made acceptable in union with Jesus, in union with Christ. That's why we build monuments anyways, because we want to be loved. We want to be accepted. We want approval. We want to be told, you are worthy. We crave that. We crave honor. We crave the delight of somebody outside of ourselves, somebody outside of us telling us we are beautiful. That's what we desire, that we crave that. We will work for that. It is our glory. But when Jesus Christ died, it was the perfect obedience I mean, he delighted God all the while he was being severed from God, severed in his relationship with God. Jesus Christ is the ultimate king of kings. He had the glory, he had the power, he had the wealth beyond measure, beyond compare, and yet the high king chose to descend to the depths, all the way to the depths of sin and ultimate death, being separated from God the Father. Jesus Christ absorbed. He took on the wrath of God, the cup of God's wrath, and he drank it all. Didn't leave a single drop left. He drank it till that cup was dry. He received everything that we deserved. Why? So that we could receive everything he deserved. It was the ultimate perfect sacrifice. And so when you believe in Jesus, God delights in you. I mean, he is the great high king, Jesus Christ, but he became small. Saul, Samuel says, Saul, you were small, and so you're trying to become great. Well, how do you, how do you change that? Well, you've got to look at the great king who became small. Philippians chapter 2 says, Jesus Christ emptied himself so that we who are small could be great in God's eyes. We could be filled with God's presence. No monument in the world will ever do that for you. No monument, maybe temporarily, that's why it's addictive. That's why we pursue it, because that feeling, that taste, that glimpse, it's all but a glimpse. What, what C.S. Lewis calls a shadow of the fullness of grace and mercy and love and intimacy and acceptance and joy that is given to us when we are coming into faith in Christ. No monument in the world will ever do that for you. So Jesus Christ, you know what he did? He builds that monument on himself. He says, it is now time, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be lifted up. You think he's building a monument. You think it's going to be in praise and glory. 
He was talking about the cross. For the Son of Man to be lit, that was his glory. Not to be cheered and praised, but to be jeered and mocked. You see that? That was his glory. He was doing that for his people. The gospel is the ultimate monument. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hidden with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. The cross is the one monument that we need. The cross is the one monument that we've been pursuing. We think we're pursuing wealth. What we're really pursuing is the acceptance and approval of God because that's, what, that's how we get it. We think that if we're wealthy or if we have great relationships, a robust lifestyle, that that is bliss. That's what, and that's what we're pursuing, but really what we're pursuing is the acceptance and love of God. And it's just a shadow, just a taste of that, a glimpse of the fullness that comes with being hidden with Christ on high. That's what's going to melt away your pride. By the cross, that's how you can know the real truth about yourself. That's how you can know everything about your sin. And yet you can still come clean because you know the real truth about God. Somebody says something to you and you just don't believe it. So you can't own it. Friends, I'm going to tell you, look, the best thing you can do, what does it hurt to just assume that they're right and to listen to them? But he just called me a liar. Jesus Christ died for liars. What's the worst thing that can happen? but to be brought into and be hidden with Christ on high and to receive everything he deserved, to know that you were honored and delighted. In fact, if anything, your, your denial resistance to that shows you don't trust. Your life isn't hidden with Christ on high. You are not willing to accept the realities. Only the cross can melt away our pride. You can come clean because you know the real truth about God, that you are loved, that you are honored, that God delights in you, and it has not changed one bit, simply because now, it's not like, you, you come to this realization like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm a sinner, and I've sinned in these specific ways. Your friends already knew. Your family's already known. Everybody in the world around you knew before you. You don't think God knew before you? And yet, it has not changed his love for you his honor, his delight in you. You are honored not because of your obedience, not because of your merit or because of your record, but because of Jesus Christ's obedience and his merit and his record. So your monument has to be the work of Christ, the finished work of Christ and the character of Christ. He perfectly obeyed and then he perfectly died and paid the penalty for you. You see that? If you make your monument Something else, oh, you need to work for it. But Jesus Christ, the cross, the gospel assures you, he cries out, it is finished. The transaction is made. The debt is paid. The work is done. And so in your word of encouragement, we read that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God, the Father. You know why he says he's seated? Because the high priest would do his work. He would never sit down because the work was never done. He was looking ahead for a true priest that would come and actually finish the work. And so in Colossians, the apostle Paul's reminding us, the work is done. It's over. It's sealed. That doesn't mean it's the end of work. We all go to work the next day. We work faithfully. But it's the end of working to make your name great. 
Forsake your monuments. Stop slaving away to make your name so great. Invest your energy to remember the only monument that can truly make you great. The only one that you need, the cross. So that when you see the cross, you see the beauty of Christ, your eyes are being restored. You start to see your sin, your eyes are being restored. Then and only then will God move away from the periphery and you can draw him back into the center of your life. And then replace, something comes into the center, it's tight in there, it's cramped. You got a lot of stuff in the center. You bring God into the center of your life. You start to move other things into the periphery where they belong. They're no longer your monuments. You can say, yeah, I need food. I need, I need money to live, but they are not the center of my life. I need intimacy, but they are not the center of my life. Yes, I need to, I'm working, I want to be faithful. You're going to be moving up in the world, but it doesn't have to be the center of your life. It doesn't have to define you. So it doesn't depress you when you don't get there to, by a certain point in time. You see that? It's no longer your monument. When you start to do that, that is repentance. Repentance, repentance isn't some words you say, some incantation that you utter. It's moving things away from the center and back into the periphery where they belong. As Christ makes his way into the center, cleans you out. So important. In fact, it's vital. It's vital to real intimacy with God. It's vital to the real growth, the fruit of good character. I know, it's hard. And it's hard. It would be impossible without God's spirit working in your life. Remember that. He gives us a spirit. There's power there. Let's prepare to have a time of communion. Let's close in prayer first.